Chapter 2 of A Theory of Monads Outlines of the Philosophy of the Principle of Relativity. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Olivia. A Theory of Monads Outlines of the Philosophy of the Principle of Relativity by Herbert Wilden Carr. Chapter 2 The Monads Perspective as the same city regarded from different sides appears as other cities and is as it were multiplied prospectively so by the infinite multitude of simple substances it comes about that there are as many different universes they are however but the perspectives of one only according to the special point of view of each monad leibniz the monad mirrors the universe and the universe consists of monads for there is nothing real but monads to each monad therefore the other monads must present an external objective aspect how is this possible it is not difficult to recognize the facts upon which the monadic theory is based it is difficult to avoid presenting those facts in a spatial setting and so completely concealing their true nature we may easily be convinced of this nothing is clearer than that the distinction between our body and our mind between the things of the body and the ideas of the mind is a distinction between what is spatial and what is not spatial our body is spatial our mind is not spatial yet whenever we think of a mind possessed of a wider or narrower range of perception we invariably find that we form the idea by the device of imagining our body to possess larger or smaller spatial proportions a large mind in the sense of a wide range of perception seems necessarily associated with bodily bulk thus when milton describes satan after his fall lying with the rebel angels prone on the lake of fire his body covers many a rood yet it is clear from the definition of the monad as a centre of activity into which the universe is mirrored that the body is not that centre but itself a part of the mirrored universe the body is not the subject for which the universe is object the body is itself part of the object which exists in and for the subject the spatial proportions of the universe and of the body as part of that universe are the perspective of the monad this means that if we accept the theory of the monads it follows necessarily that we cannot regard space as an absolute reality within which the monads are space is not the unity or continuity which binds the monads together and makes the many one space is the unity which binds together the diversity within the monad but that is because the monad's activity is centralized and the universe is its perspective when i look up into the starry sky on a clear night the immediate object of my visual perception is a firmament bespangled with myriad stars science has discovered that those stars are distant suns an infinite universe of boundless potentiality and illimitable diversity lies beyond my ken outside the system to which i belong and the range of activity which makes up my life yet every ray of light from however distant a star reveals to me when i interpret its message that the world from which it comes is of like nature with my world subject to the same order the same natural laws and in every sense continuous with it again beneath and within the smallest compass which i can distinguish as part of my tangible world there is a universe of infinite diversity science reveals to me that my tangible world is composed of ultimate constituents of a nature which i denote by the term electrical constituents which form molecules atoms electrons etc 
the immediate objects of sense which lead me to conceive this world reveal in that world a unity of structure and a uniformity of behavior which show it to be continuous not only with my own world but with the infinite stellar universe beyond what is the nature and what the origin of this systematic unity what is it makes this one many this many one what is the principle of interpretation which this unity demands the monadic theory rejects the view that the unity and diversity of the universe are qualities or characters inherent in an objective reality independent of the mind presented or given in passive contemplation if we assume or posit such a reality and suppose its presentation to the mind and suppose the mind possessed of the power of discernment it is still unintelligible how or that such reality could itself reveal to contemplation the character which is implied in saying that in it the many are one and one many and we are in fact forced as i shall endeavour to show when we seek to make such character rational to introduce a transcendent source of the unity the monadic activity is self-centred the monad acts as a seed or germ acts when it is converting its inner potentiality into outward expression and action a monad does not create or produce from itself the universe for the monads are the true atoms of nature and monad does not create monad there are not monads and universes but to each monad belongs its universe which is the universe the monad determines from within the perspective of its universe inasmuch as it is a centre from which the universe is viewed and into which the universe is mirrored in this perspective lies the principle of unity and diversity each monad is confined to its own perspective but the very isolation which is thus affirmed postulates the infinity of monads for there are infinite perspectives every monad exists both in itself and for the other monads in itself it is a subject of experience living its experience with its own perspective for the other monads it is part of each monad's universe within whose perspective it comes and of which perspective it forms a part thus while every monad is thing in itself and also thing for another it is not for another what it is in itself and it is not in itself what it is for another it is not easy to see why unity and diversity in nature cannot be directly apprehended as attributes of a reality in which they are inherent and it is most important to demonstrate this impossibility clearly at the outset to ordinary common sense the monadic theory presents a distinct air of paradox it seems unnecessary and even perverse to common sense to reject an interpretation of nature which is plain and straightforward for one which whatever fascination it may have for dialecticians calls for an unusually difficult intellectual effort and carries us in the reverse direction to that of our ordinary habits of thought the interpretation of uncritical common sense is that we discover in nature unity and uniformity because they are there to be discovered it is part of a general uncritical theory and as it is not unusual for philosophers to appeal to what they call common sense it is very important to state the theory with precision common sense is the view that things are in their independent existence what they are as we know them it is not merely the belief or opinion that things exist independently of whether we know them or not it is the affirmation that things which we know are in their own nature what they are as objects in our knowledge of them common sense is not dualistic in the philosophical meaning of the term it does not distinguish mind as thinking substance from matter as extended substance 
it has no theory of knowledge it simply accepts what is as what may be known and what is known as being in itself what it is known as being many philosophers have claimed for their theories of knowledge and reality that they simply formulate this naive realism of common sense berkeley for example was insistent that his theory essay is percipi expressed the ordinary unsophisticated man's meaning we may admit that so far berkeley was right yet when he sought to justify the common-sense view of the permanence of existing things the view that our perceptions which we are actually perceiving are continuous with identical objectively existing perceptions which we are not perceiving and this is common sense he was driven to posit as the ground of this continuity a transcendent cause the claim of berkeley to represent common sense is indeed one of the paradoxes of philosophy berkeley's theory is literally what the ordinary man to be consistent must mean yet it is what the ordinary man never does mean so that we may quote boswell's words in the famous story of dr johnson claiming to have refuted berkeley's theory by kicking a stone that though we are satisfied his doctrine is not true it is impossible to refute it the reason is that our first reflection on experience the ordinary reflection which leads to scientific knowledge brings home to us the evident fact that the particular form nature assumes in immediate apprehension is determined by perspective perspective clearly appertains to the mind and depends on its standpoint of observation and is not inherent in the object apprehended hence arises the distinction between the object of scientific knowledge and the object of direct sense perception science we regard as peculiarly concerned with the task of determining what reality is when divested of every appearance which can be attributed to the observer's perspective dialectical disquisitions on what common sense means or ought to mean by its affirmation of the real existence of the objective world have an air of unreality they never seem to come to close quarters with a real issue it is both more important and more impressive to examine the notion of reality which serves as a basis of physical science just as a space of geometry is not the space of sense experience so the reality which science treats as actual independent existence is not the reality of sense experience it is a conceived not a perceived reality and if it must be formulated in terms of a potential perception it is a perception which under no possible conditions could be actual it is a conceptual reality which experience is held both to postulate and interpret it is important therefore to lay this concept bare that is to show what is implied not in any particular theory of the constitution of the external world but in the general notion deeply seated in common-sense thought that there is a real world with its own nature independent of the mind whose object it may be and that this world whatever its nature and however inaccessible to us is the ground of knowledge and the only criterion of the validity of knowledge when we examine the notion and follow out its implications we are likely to be amazed at its inconsistency and we may even come to feel surprise that we should have somehow come to believe it as a matter of course the antecedent improbability of its truth makes belief in it seem so extravagant the world of immediate experience is both diverse and uniform it is many and it is one its variety is infinite its order universal and this many oneness is the principle which enables science to carry investigations beyond what is given in experience and formulate results which transcend any possibility of verification by actual experience 
what sort of world must it be then if we assume it to exist in itself and to display the character of many oneness as its inherent property to the mind which contemplates it we are to divest the world of any aspect it may present which is due to the perspective of the observer and form a notion of it as it is in itself and unobserved the world must consist of matter or stuff in the form of which may be quite indeterminate but it will be absolutely conditioned in three definite respects namely one adverse occupancy of space by adverse is meant that the occupancy is absolute and exclusive two perduration of time and three mobility that is the power to occupy a new position in space at a new moment in time space time and mobility are the conditions of existence but what really exists is the matter or stuff these real conditions however are essentially principles of division and separation by virtue of them real existence is many not one space occupancy confers independence space is an order of juxtaposition the very concept of it implies the exclusiveness and therefore the independence of the occupant abstracted from the mind and purely in itself real existence is a many which cannot possess any principle of unity to secure uniformity for pure space and pure time possess no privileged point or moment such as exists in the experience of an observer the diversity of the world so considered is absolute but this is to deny to the concept we have formed the very condition which alone can make it the object of scientific knowledge on the other hand unity and uniformity are necessary conditions of mind and mentality from which we have made abstraction the greeks accounted for the unity and uniformity of nature by imagining the world populated with nature gods nymphs satyrs river gods and such like the christians rejected this as paganism and believed that the physical universe was brought into existence by the personal creative act of god but that at present it is to a large extent under the sway of satan and his subordinate spirits of evil both systems of thought are mythological and anthropomorphic but at least they recognize the fact that the unity of nature can only be conceived in terms of mind the modern scientific concept of a physical world existing in itself and in abstraction from mind and yet possessing and capable of revealing unity in its diversity is a self-contradiction for the reality of science is absolute in its manifoldness there can be in the very nature of it no unity yet science assumes uniformity and conceives that its reality not only possesses it but reveals it the common-sense belief that the ground of our knowledge of the physical universe is the objective existence of that universe in itself and irrespective of its relation to our mind in knowing it is not a dualistic doctrine and is not to be identified with dualism as a philosophical theory common sense does not set over against the object the independent existence of another kind of existence the mind it rather inclines to the view that the mind is nothing substantial or what is the same thing that anything may be a mind it is important therefore to point out that a precisely analogous difficulty would confront us were we to take mind abstracted from its object physical nature as possessing independent existence to suppose that the mind or subject of knowledge exists independently of the object of knowledge that it would be unaffected in its nature and existence if separated from any and every object could easily be shown to involve the same contradiction as that which we have noted in the common-sense belief yet common sense does not commit this logical error the reason is that no practical need compels us to affirm the substantiality of mind 
The things of the mind, thoughts, feelings, volitions, seem so unsubstantial that our natural difficulty is to imagine their independent existence, whereas the objects of the physical world are so insistent in their materiality that to regard them as in any way dependent on their relation to the mind seems irrational. When we try to get behind the common sense and scientific belief in order to discover and lay bare the rational need in our nature which this belief satisfies, we find this deep-seated conviction. Whatever we regard as real must, it seems to us, possess an in-itself nature. However much the aspect it presents to an outside observer may belong to that observer's perspective. And it is precisely this need that the monadic theory is designed to satisfy. Monadism is not an attempt to establish for the subjective order of images and ideas a superior reality to that of the objective order of physical objects. In declaring the monads to be the true atoms of nature, that is, to be reals, it is not denying the objectivity of nature, but presenting a theory of it. Every real is thing in itself, yet its objectivity for a subject cannot be that in itselfness. Monadism reconciles being for self and being for another. I will accordingly present the monadic theory in relation to what it rejects and to what it accepts of the common-sense notion of reality. It rejects the common-sense belief in an absolute space and time as the necessary background or framework of reality. There is no common universe of the monads open to all and private to none. The monads are not circumscribed. They are not like a froth, each bubble in which is bounded and shut in by the circumferences of the others. On the other hand, monadism accepts the common-sense belief that whatever is real exists in itself and for itself and does not depend for its existence on the presence in the consciousness or mind of another. It accepts also the common-sense belief that objects of knowledge are things in themselves. But it rejects the common-sense belief that objects are in themselves what they are as objects of knowledge, or that knowledge of objects is knowledge of things in themselves, for things in themselves are monads. The most fundamental difference, therefore, is in regard to the concepts of space and time. For monadism, these concepts are not, as they are for common sense, principles of separation of reals. On the contrary, they are principles of unity. They belong to the monad. They are the perspective of its universe. The difference is not whether space and time are real or unreal, and common sense is not the view that they are real as opposed to monadism for which they are unreal. They are equally real for monadism, but the nature of the reality is conceived as fundamentally different. Space and time belong to the reality of the monad, and are not the reality upon which the monad depends, and from which the monad's reality is derived. The nature of space and time is therefore the problem of the monad's perspective. One of the most important landmarks in the evolution of the philosophical theory is the doctrine of Kant in the Critique of Pure Reason, that space and time are brought by the mind to nature and not given to the mind by nature. But a century before Kant, the problem of space and time had forced itself on the attention of philosophers as a consequence of the advance of purely inductive science. A difficulty arose over the question of the nature of magnitude. In the 17th century, two scientific instruments were invented, the telescope and the microscope. Why mankind had to wait so long for them is difficult to understand, for they were nothing more than practical applications, mathematically deduced, of the observation which must have been familiar even to primitive man, that objects seen through a spherical transparent body, such as a drop of water, are visually magnified. 
the new instruments brought new and ever wider realms within the range of accurate observation they were also the occasion of a philosophical discovery of a curious nature and of wide speculative interest the discovery that great and small have no absolute meaning that magnitude is not a property or character intrinsic to real existences i will state briefly the argument as it is given by malebranche in his recherche de la verite book one chapter six a remarkable chapter which had a great influence on contemporaries the argument impressed berkeley who has reproduced it in the first dialogue of hylaeus and polonius and who also makes reference to it in cirrus suppose i take a line an inch in length i know by mathematical proof that it is divisible to infinity yet a very moderate division brings me to the absolute limit of what i can actually distinguish a limit below which no fraction exists for me at all but the inch may represent a mile and then at once hundred thousandths of the inch are appreciable again a mite by which malebranche meant any living creature so tiny that it is visible and no more is for me a minimum visible any part of it its foot for instance is less than my minimum visible therefore for me it can have no foot but place the mite under the microscope and my minimum visible is changed i now view reality not from my standpoint but as it was from the mite's standpoint i find that the mite has an organism to some extent the counterpart of mine and a world which is not the cramped world of my ordinary perspective but a world in which there are magnitudes which correspond to mine so i am led to conclude not only that the mite has a foot but that its foot is of precisely the same order of magnitude as mine in other words from my ordinary point of view the mite has no foot from my microscopic standpoint if as it may it exactly corresponded with the mite's ordinary standpoint the mite has a foot as big as mine this may sound curious in the somewhat quaint example chosen by malebranche but the argument is not obscure when we look at an object through a telescope or through a microscope we describe the effect as magnification of the object in the one case a distant object in the other a near one yet it is quite clear that the object undergoes no kind of alteration whatsoever if then we try to correct our statement we shall probably say that the object is unchanged but its appearance is magnified yet this is not only a contradiction in terms but also a gross inaccuracy an appearance cannot be magnified and the new appearance is not only different in its proportions but in kind we may work out a point-to-point -point correspondence between the two appearances but this would be in respect of abstract mathematical or logical characters so far as imagery is concerned they are completely different what in fact happens is neither change in the object nor in its appearance but change in the observer's perspective the instrument enables me protanto to view the world as it appears to an observer in another system of reference such an argument is generally supposed to be concerned purely with knowledge and not with the reality which we know it may even be held that the relativity of our knowledge of magnitude implies the absolute reality of that of which our knowledge is relative for example we possess no absolute standard by which to measure time but we do not base on that negative fact a denial of the reality of time again we never see what we believe to be the true size of anything for its true size would be that which would be seen if no distance intervened between the object and the eye and in that position nothing could be seen so it seems to us that the fact we all recognize that our knowledge is mediate and relative requires us also to recognize as a correlative truth that the reality in itself is absolute this is not the case with the particular problem of magnitude
It is not merely that we do not know or cannot know the true magnitude of any object. It is that magnitude is not a fixed determination of any objects. Suppose two observers, one, A, has telescopic vision and sees the world as we see the heavenly bodies when we look through a telescope. The other, B, has microscopic vision and sees the world as we see ordinarily invisible objects through a microscope. Let us suppose that each is looking at the same object, say the sun. In the perspective of A, it will be a large expanse on which he distinguishes the various markings known to astronomers. In the perspective of B, it will, by reason of its greater distance, be a minute point of light. If it be an identical object for each observer, as we are supposing, then either its actual magnitude is different, or else the space which separates it from B is greater than the space which separates it from A. Either alternative involves a denial of magnitude. Moreover, it is impossible to reduce the spatial difference to appearance. For let us suppose that A and B actually set out to travel together from a common starting point to a common goal. Either the time occupied in the journey, though beginning at the same moment and ending at the same moment, is different for each, immensely longer for B than for A, or else the velocity of their movement is different, immensely greater for A than for B. Either alternative involves the denial of magnitude. Yet again, suppose a light signal from an identical source to arrive simultaneously to each observer. Then if the velocity of light be uniform, the source is in a different point of space for A than for B, or if the point in space be identical for each, then the velocity of light is not uniform, but immensely greater for B than for A. The usual explanation of the phenomenon of telescopic and microscopic vision is that each is a deformation of the normal appearance of a real spatial extension, that it is analogous to astigmatism, or to the distortion of the convex and concave mirrors, or indeed to the ordinary accommodation to perspective. Such explanation will not hold. In these cases, there is complete compensation which can be worked out mathematically. In the case supposed, there is and can be no compensation. The inch of one is the mile of the other. It is not intended to deny that any change which a particular object may undergo when viewed in a new perspective is accompanied by a correspondent change in every other object in the old perspective introduced into the new. Thus, if the mite's foot, in Malebranche's example, appear the size of my foot, a correspondent change would occur in the magnitude of my own foot brought from the old perspective into the new. It may be argued, therefore, that the ratio between magnitudes is constant throughout all changes in perspective. This is not denied, but it means that the magnified foot would only be the size of the foot if everything were altered in the same ratio, and that means that if the system of reference is changed, and that means that the magnitudes of the new system are identical with those of the old. What is denied is that there exists a standard of absolute magnitude, a standard which would enable us to fix a ratio between perspectives. In my normal perspective, I myself am neither large nor small. I am the norm, and in that perspective the mite is infinitesimal. In the mite's perspective, the mite itself is neither small nor large. It is its own norm, and if I come into its perspective, I am a gigantic object. There may be perspectives in which both I and the mite are objects, and in these they may preserve the ratio of magnitude they have for me and for the mite. What is denied is that there is behind and beneath both these perspectives an absolute standard of reference, such as the Newtonian space or the ether, a system of reference which determines the ratio of perspectives. 
the perspective itself is absolute and the norm of magnitude in all perspectives is constant not variable it is this which is essential in the monadic theory reality is not an absolute within which monads are and from which their reality is derived the monads are the reals the principle i have had in mind as directly contrary to the monadic principle is that known in philosophy as scientific monism it interprets the many oneness of reality by an absolute which is external to experience that is a physical basis independent of experience but on which experience depends the philosophical monism however which is usually propounded as the most direct contrary of monadism is a principle of the universal comprehensiveness of experience this is the idealist theory that the absolute is the one ultimate subject of experience in relation to which finite individuals are adjectival the opposition between this philosophical monism and monadism offers a contrast of an altogether different kind from that of scientific monism there is essential agreement as to the nature of reality but divergence in the interpretation of its form absolutism insists on the one manyness of reality monadism emphasizes the many oneness absolutism affirms that there is one ultimate subject of the logical judgment that all propositions imply if they do not adopt the form reality is such that and that the absolute itself is a superindividual expressing itself in and through finite centers of experience it denies that finite individuals are monads and that taken by themselves they are all-inclusive it declares on the contrary that taken by themselves they bear evidence of their abstraction from the whole they are torn out as it were from the whole to which they belong and manifest their origin in torn edges at the same time they exhibit a degree of reality and it is this that gives them their individuality so that infinite individuals may approximate to the absolute itself in the degree of their reality this brief and inadequate presentation of what is essential in absolutism is necessary in order to make clear what is essential in the monadic scheme in order to present this monadic scheme in the simplest possible form i will take an illustration which though it must primarily be a representation in the reader's mind i want to analyze not as a representation but as actually occurring experience according to the theory the monads are infinite in the positive meaning of the term but i propose to select two monads and consider them in their separate existence and mutual relations as exhausting reality my purpose is to make unambiguous the monadic theory of the nature of the multiplicity and unity of reality and to show the essential respect in which it differs both from scientific and from philosophic monism in the descriptions of the battlefields in france during the great war one of the extraordinary circumstances recorded by many observers was the persistence of bird life continuing its ordinary activity undisturbed however inconvenienced while havoc and destruction were being wrought in its environment it is said that after an artillery duel or barrage of great intensity had ceased the skylarks could be heard continuing their song which apparently had been proceeding throughout the terrific noise of the explosions let us picture to ourselves then a soldier after battle listening to a skylark's song and the skylark above the smoke choosing its alighting ground with regard to the soldier in whose movements we may suppose it directly concerned let us take these two subjects of experience for our illustration the soldier and the skylark let us suppose the identity of their environment so far as anything we are accustomed to regard as physical reality is concerned and let us suppose each to be within the perspective of the other let us consider them as two monads or reals and suppose them to be the whole of reality 
in the absolute sense in which reality is experience that is let us suppress in thought the idea that there are any other subjects of experience there is no difficulty in doing this for the supposition involves no diminution of reality the reality we will call the battle and we suppose that it exists in the experience of the soldier and in that of the skylark and that they alone experience it the battle is not to be thought of as a third thing but as that which each and both are experiencing in what sense are these monads two and in what sense one and how is their two-ness reconcilable with their oneness the soldier and the skylark are each within the other's perspective yet neither is for the other what it is in itself on the other hand one and the same monad is both in itself and for another and the in itself existence is not existentially distant from the for another existence there is therefore an essential two-ness which is not an existential two-ness in what does it consist the answer is all-important it does not consist in the obvious fact that neither lives the experience of the other such a proposition is true but purely tautological involved in the bare concept of numerical difference the true answer is that the two monads are essentially and substantially two because there is no identity of meaning in the experience of each neither in the experience in its integrity nor in the minutest element or part of it on whatever principle it be analyzable on the objective side there is no common factor let no one accept this statement without challenging it if there be a common factor what is it the experience in each is of battle as that battle exists for each experient whether it be conceived as a whole or as an infinite diversity neither as a whole nor in any aspect of the whole or of its infinite detail can it mean the same to each such is the essential pluralism of the monads in what then we now ask does the essential oneness consist the answer is that reality is not shared out between the two monads so that part is appropriated by one part by another each monad is within the other's perspective but in coming into another's perspective the included monad leaves nothing of itself outside there is absolutely no transcendence the soldier's perspective which the skylark does not possess is not a detachable part of the soldier as he actually exists in the skylark's perspective this then is the principle of monadic explanation and if i have succeeded in making it clear in the supposed case of the two monads it will be seen that it is of universal application reality is experience the subjects of experience are monads every monad enjoys its own perspective not by reason of its spatial ex exclusiveness of other monads but by reason of the inclusiveness of the monads in its universe finally when a monad is within the perspective of another monad the perspective of the included monad is not part of the perspective of the monad in which it is included there is yet a further point of great importance it is only for a monad that there are monads a monad is not in and for itself a monad that is one of the monads thus we may say the soldier and the skylark are monads but we must not mean that each apprehends itself as a monad we apprehend it as a monad when we recognize that in itself it is the subject of experience within its own perspective the only way in which i can present myself to myself as a monad is by the device of imagining myself as in the perspective of another monad thus monadism gives us a concept of reality in complete contrast with that which is assumed by scientific realism the universe which comes within the perspective of the monad is real in the most absolute meaning of the term its reality does not mean however that what is within any perspective is in itself what it is in that perspective 
but the direct contrary. What it is in itself is not what it is in the perspective. That alone is real which exists in itself, and knowledge of reality is knowledge that this in itself existence belongs to what in my experience is my perspective. I recognize as real only what is in my perspective and by reason of its belonging to my perspective. But the reality I recognize is that what is for me a perspective has in itself a perspective of its own, in which perspective I may have a place. Whatever cannot be thought of as subject of experience cannot be thought of as real. The philosophical gain of this theory of reality is that it dispenses with the concept of transcendent reality. There is no point in the theory of monads at which it is necessary to bring in the deus ex machina. I say this advisedly because Leibniz's theory of created monads and of a pre-established harmony has probably, more than anything else, done him the disservice of concealing the strength and self-sufficiency of the principle he has the merit of having discovered. Leibniz felt himself under the necessity of reconciling his notion of reality with that of a creator God, and this introduces at once a discrepancy into the whole concept. There is no way conceivable by which a simple substance can perish naturally. For the same reason, there is none by which a simple substance can begin naturally, since it cannot be formed by composition. So we may say, then, that the monads can begin or end only all at once. That is to say, they can only begin by creation, and only end by annihilation. It is clear from this that it is not because without God their reality would be transient that the monads are in need of God. On the contrary, God is required because the monads must not be self-sufficient, as by their concept they are. They must be created, and creation is an event in time. But in the monad, time as well as space is within the universe mirrored. The time order belongs to the monad's perspective. Creation makes time an external condition of the monad, and the monad has no external condition. Leibniz, while endowing the monads with an indestructible nature in their relations to one another, postulates a transcendent God by whose creative act they are brought into existence as a system with a pre-established harmony, and by whose act they might conceivably be annihilated. Annihilated not individually, but as a system. Partial annihilation would break up the system and destroy the harmony. Such an act of God is not wanted to give constancy to the monadic theory. Monadism, as a theory, is neither atheistic nor theistic, for the sufficient reason that its essential principle involves the inconceivability of transcending experience. For the same reason it is not agnostic, affirming a god and declaring him unknowable. Our perspective of the universe is not only from within the universe, but from a center into which it is reflected. We cannot view the universe from outside, because we cannot be outside. The monads in our perspective are not the outsides of universes. Monads have no outside. The externality with which one monad endows another in its perspective is derived from that perspective and belongs wholly to it. To create is to bring into existence what does not pre-exist. The monad is creative in its nature because that nature is essential activity. It is possible to create a work of art, as Pygmalion created Galatea when he sculptured her form in stone. It is impossible to create a monad, a living Galatea, for to do that is to create a human nature, which can only mean bringing into existence what pre-exists. It would be to create something the very essence of which is its past experience. There is, that is to say, a contradiction in the very notion of creating a living thing, for a living thing carries its past in its present activity. How can there be creation of the past? 
Moreover, the very notion of creation involves the concept of a transcendent creator. Thus Pygmalion can only create Galatea if he already possesses an idea that he will express in sculptured marble. The whole theological difficulty of the origin of evil, of sin and redemption, arises from the perception that in the very idea of creation is involved pre-existence as idea in the mind of God. We cannot escape the dilemma. And God said, Let there be light, and there was light. What meaning can we give to this if we suppose before the creative act in existence of light, even as intuition in the Creator's mind when called forth by expression in word? It is clear, therefore, that anything we can call creation falls within and is not outside the monad. To create monads is inconceivable. To conceive God as a creator is to conceive God as monad, and it must then be true of God, as of every monad, that he is a living mirror of the universe, and the reality of that universe can only be the infinite monads within his perspective. Only a monad can create because only a monad can have that twofold activity which presents in idea what it will bring into existence. And a monad cannot be created or brought into existence because the present which alone could be created includes the past of which it is the outcome and holds within it potentially the future. To sum up, I have argued that the monadic principle is the only philosophical principle which can do justice to the unity and manifoldness of reality, and which at the same time is under no necessity to sacrifice either character to the other. In interpreting the nature of the real, it eschews the attempt to transcend it. It neither seeks the origin of unity in a transcendent character of the many, nor the origin of the many in a transcendent one. The nature of the reality itself discloses the inconceivability of origin. It is not in appearance, but in itself, that reality is both one and many. It is not an agnostic limitation. It is hard to convince ourselves that the mind's attempts to transcend reality are vain. We are indebted to Kant, above all, for having established this philosophic truth. The ideas of reason, objects of a transcendent reality, God, the soul, the world, are not speculative ideas, but regulative ideas and practical postulates. We cannot know them because they are not objects within experience, and we are not subjects outside experience. On the other hand, monism transcends the given in order to affirm a one, superior to, more original and more real than the many. Scientific monism affirms a transcendent object, absolutism a transcendent subject of experience. Absolutism, therefore, comes very close indeed to monadism inasmuch as it sees the principle of many oneness in the subject rather than in the object. Both absolutism and monadism recognize that only what acts is, and that only mind or spirit acts. And moreover, in the theory of degrees of reality, it comes very close to the monadic concept. It fails, and monadism succeeds just in the fact that the one must and the other need not appeal to a transcendent principle. Unity and diversity, the one and the many, can only be interpreted, then, on the principle that reality is monadic. The ordinary view of common sense, which has formed the concept of scientific reality, is that activity is exercised by the mind upon an independent material given to it. The monadic theory is that mind is self-centered activity developing like a germ or seed by converting inner potentiality into outward expression and action. The monad does not create its universe or produce it out of its own nature, for the monads are the true atoms of nature, and monads cannot create monads. The monad is an acting center into which its universe is mirrored. 
the perspective of its universe is determined by the monad from within and is self-contained the monad is confined to its perspective but in that perspective are the infinite monads the monads within the monads perspective are the reality of the monads universe the monad is both in itself and for another in itself it is subject of experience with its perspective for another it belongs to the universe of the monad in whose perspective it is monadism means that reality is activity and not a stuff of which activity may be an attribute quality or endowment it denies substance as inert substratum but affirms substance as active subject of experience monads are not a crowd with spatial boundaries plurality is not mutual exclusiveness the monad mirrors the whole universe and infinite monads are within the universe of the monad yet there are not an infinity of universes limiting one another the monads all enter into and constitute the universe of every monad but the perspective of one monad forms no part of the universe of another monad the perspective of the monad is its in itselfness and incommunicable monads are things in themselves for in themselves they are subjects of experience they know and are unknown for to become known they would have to enter as objects into the experience of a subject and in so far as they were objects they would cease to be subjects end of chapter two recorded by olivia